Welcome to the Center for the Study of World Religions. Uh, happy to have you here tonight. Uh, particularly welcome to those of you who have come for the first time. So the Center has been here since 1960, and over the past nearly 60 years now, this room has been the scene of many wonderful discussions and conversations of all sorts. And it's great that you can be here tonight. For those of you who are new, my name is Frank Clooney. I'm a professor here in the Divinity School and I'm currently the director of the center. So I'm happy to host this event tonight. And we have many events here, all kinds of discussions and colloquia and workshops and so on here. But one of my favorites every year is this series of new faculty book events. And I think in the busyness of our lives and almost inevitably due to the privacy of our research, we sort of know that each other are writing books. But many times we never actually look between the covers of the books that people write. We congratulate people and never have the time to stop and talk to one another about the book project. And so this series, um, this is the third one this semester. We'll have three more at least in the second semester. An occasion simply to open up the book, uh, to celebrate it by taking seriously the content of the book. Uh, the author always goes first. Ahmad Raghab will speak first tonight. And then at his choosing, we have three very distinguished respondents tonight who I'll introduce when the time comes. They will respond. They're not obliged or tasked with doing a book review, but rather to dimensions of the book, questions that they find interesting to put forward. After they've spoken, Ahmed will have a chance to respond to them, uh, any brief comments about their questions and comments. Then their chairs will uh, come up here and facing out, and we'll continue discussion, open discussion. Um, and we usually, we always finish at 7 o'clock. So I know people have to go, but to get the pressure off by knowing at 7 o'clock there'll be a break, and people are welcome to stay and continue to you know, chat and drink refreshments and so on. So it's meant to be a, a very enjoyable and casual event. And in a moment, I'll pass around the book, The Medieval Islamic Hospital, Medicine, Religion, and Charity. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and if you haven't looked at it, you have the table of contents, which is a great uh, thing to have, but also you can take a look at the book itself as it works its way around. So I have the honor, first of all, of introducing Ahmed Raghab, who is the Richard T. Watson Assistant Professor of Science and Religion here at the university and at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, he has his MD from Cairo University and his PhD from the École Pratique des Hautes Etudes in Paris. Um, Ahmed is the, um, also an affiliate professor in the Department of the History of Science and is also the director of the Science, Religion, and Culture program here at the Divinity School. He joined the Divinity School in 2011 and is the first Richard T. Watson Assistant Professor of Science and Religion. Uh, he is a physician, as I just mentioned, a historian of science and medicine, and a scholar of science and religion in many diverse aspects. Um, in 2012, he inaugurated a very creative and ambitious program, Science, Religion, and Culture, and he continues to direct this program. He also has a splendid um, conference, an international now conference for graduate students here at the university, and does a thousand other things and somehow has time to teach and remain looking young and all of these things <laughs> all at once. There's some secret there you can ask him about afterwards. Uh, he's also an elected member of the Commission on the History of Science and Technology in Islamic Societies and a member of the International Society for Science and Religion. His research, as we'll see tonight, 
includes the history of science, medicine, and culture in the Islamic world, including the current work we'll be discussing on the medieval Islamic hospitals. But he's also done research on the epistemic authority of medieval Muslim women with a focus on women reporters in prophetic traditions. He's also worked on sex and gender differentiation in medical thought in the region, the development of anatomy and dissection, and their relation to religious practices in the Ottoman context. He investigates medical thinking, physician-patient encounters in medieval and early modern context. In another uh, developing book project, Ahmed is investigating the development of views on science and Islam in the early 19th century. The project looks at how debates on science and Islam coincided with the introduction of modern science in the region and allowed for recasting the meanings of both science knowledge and religious knowledge in that context. Ahmed explains the historicity of the relationship of science and Islam and the role played by the coupling of science and Islam in the formulation of new scientific discourses in the region. So probably in a year or two, we'll have another book event on that book when it comes out. But tonight, we'll be discussing the medieval Islamic hospital. And so let us welcome Ahmed to speak first. Thank you, Frank, and many thanks to the Center for hosting this event and for all of you for coming. And many thanks uh, to Roy, Heese, and Charlie for uh, agreeing to respond to the book. Now I know that at least six people read the book, myself included. <laughs> so that's obviously good to know. Um, so <clears throat> the medieval Islamic hospital uh, in the 12th and 13th century, the medieval Islamic hospital became one of the major features in the urban environment in a number of cities and towns in the Near East. In many of these, we see this, for instance, in travelogues that are written in the 12th and 13th century, where travelers describe their encounters with these hospitals and the time they spend there, but also they describe how they expect to find these hospitals in every single city that they go in, and if they happen not to find one, they usually inquire why the city doesn't have a hospital. We also find mentions of hospitals in chronicles, in biographical dictionaries, and in many other literary sources that show how these hospitals were again part and parcel of the urban environment in which our authors or these authors were thinking and writing. We also obviously have them in the stories and the life stories of the different physicians who worked in these, um, many of them worked in these hospitals, were connected with them in one way or another. In fact, most of the physicians that we know about from the 13th century on have had some form of a relationship to a particular hospital at one point in their career, if not have worked their entire career in these hospitals. And finally, we have the archaeological ruins that remain from these hospitals in the different cities and towns of the Near East. The hospital itself was also an important topic, or again, the Islamic hospital, to be more precise, was an important topic in the study of history of medicine and in the study of history of hospitals in general, because in the view of many authors, this was considered to be, quote, a proto-modern hospital. On one hand, it was run by, uh, historians argue, it was run largely by physicians rather than by religious scholars or religious authorities. Sometimes even it had a complex bureaucratic uh, apparatus that again employed or had a significant role for physicians. 
They were also hospitals that dedicated all the resources to the treatment and management of sickness and to treat sick people, as opposed to having or hosting other people, like for instance, the poor, the fatigued, the tired, the crippled, and so on. And they intended, or their main function, was to treat these people rather than to isolate them. In these particular arguments, these historians are distinguishing Islamic hospitals from other contemporaneous and earlier models, like, for, for instance, Byzantine institutions or Crusader institutions, many of which were run by religious authorities, for instance, and many of which also did not admit except patients of a particular religious tradition, did not employ physicians from outside the religious tradition, and in most cases, these hospitals served as well larger function that included hosting, for instance, uh, um, they also included orphanages, hospices, included housing of the crippled, the poor, and so on. And and then another important layer, this was also being contrasted, or the Islamic hospital is also being contrasted to Liprosaria, for instance, which are a, an, get another uh, medical institution for collective care, but did not have as part of its function the treatment of particular sick people, but rather their isolation outside of the cityscape or outside of a particular urban environment. Now, this particular line of inquiry in understanding the Islamic hospital, which I call a history of medicalization, lends itself to particular conclusions or to specific questions about the history of these hospitals. One of these questions, for instance, is how developed these hospitals were, what are the very first quote-unquote true Islamic hospital, meaning a hospital that exhibited these particular quote-unquote secular or proto-modern qualities. Another question is the development of these hospitals over time and how they become more or less medicalized. And eventually it lends itself to narratives of decline as well, where Islamic hospital declines because the authority of religious figures become more pronounced and the hospital loses its quote-unquote proto-modern or secular qualities. What I propose in the book is to move beyond or away from this particular line of inquiry to think rather about what I call an embodied and material history of the hospital. In this case, these hospitals, the book tries to argue or describes these hospitals as institutions that emerge within their own physical and material and urban context. As such, they are connected not to a general or an ideal view of what hospitals or institutions of medical care should be like or how they should relate, say, to religion in ideal terms, but rather they are related to a material history of charitable institutions that exist in a particular urban context and therefore that engender specific forms of relationship with the practitioners of charity, the patrons of charity, but also the consumers of this charity. In a way, the locutionary force of these particular hospitals could only be understood, I would argue, in what Derrida would, would describe as a difference. In this case, it is a difference as they relate or differ from a particular or other sets of charitable institutions, but also differ to these specific institutions. In the same way, they differ from ideal views about medical institutions as they differ to them at the same time. 
a material and an embodied historiography of hospitals is one that pays more and more attention to the physical experiences of patients. So in parts of this book, I try to trace how these patients actually walk inside the hospital, pay attention to the architectural structure, to the existence of these hospitals within their own urban landscape, and at the same time, think about how the urban environment that conditions the existence of most of these institutions also affect the patients and the consumers and the practitioners in these hospitals. In the same way, this kind of embodied approach, I would argue, allows us to see changes in medical thought and in medical practice that could not be detected solely through a process of looking at medical textbooks. Here, the material challenges and the embodied challenges that happen because of the practice in these particular institutions lead to certain changes in medical thought and in medical practice. So I argue in the book, for instance, that medical thought that during the, the 13th and 14th century, the existence of particular groups of physicians who were connected to these institutions and who worked in these hospitals and were connected to them in various ways, changes the way they understood their own practice, changed their own diagnostic and therapeutic modalities, and therefore led to a number of changes in how medicine was practiced in general. In the same way, this particular way of looking at the hospital moves beyond the question of the relationship between religion and medicine in these particular institutions. Here, these institutions are seen as part of a larger network of charity that connects them to other forms of charitable, religious, and pietistic practices. And as such, they should not be seen in distinction from these practices, and the fact that they were run, whether by bureaucrats, religious authorities, or physicians, should not be read as an indicator of relationship between medicine and religion, but rather the relationship, if you will, between medicine, this time small m, and religion, this time small r should be understood through the immediate and the embodied practices of patients, physicians, and practitioners who are actually working inside the hospital itself. In a way, this particular view as well tries to, again, move beyond the question of decline. A decline of an Islamic hospital or the narratives of the decline of the Islamic hospital often relied on, again, an ideal version of what these hospitals should look like that is often articulated through discourses about secularism and about the relationship between medicine and religion. However, if we look at these hospitals across different religio-cultural traditions and across different time periods as related to a specific urban environment and to particular performances of need, of disease, and of healing, as well as of charity, piety, and patronage, then we are able to see how these institutions could not be simply described in a story of rise and decline. So with these, I again thank you very much, and Frank. You will introduce our speakers. Thank you. Thank you, Ahmed. So we're very grateful tonight to have three very distinguished um, respondents who've taken out time at the end of a very busy semester to be here tonight. So we're very grateful to you. And I'll introduce them one at a time. So our first is Charles Stang, professor of early Christian thought here at the Divinity School. He joined the Divinity faculty in 2008 after uh, studies at the University of Chicago and his doctorate here at the university. His research and teaching focus on the history and theology of Christianity in late antiquity, especially Eastern varieties of Christianity. More specifically, he is interested in development of asceticism, monasticism, and mysticism in Eastern Christianity. 
He is a prolific young writer, another one, um, editor of The Waking Dream of T.E. Lawrence, essays on his life, literature, and legacy, editor with Sarah Coakley on Rethinking Dionysius the Areopagite, 2009, and with Zachary Giuliano, The Open Body Essays in Anglican Ecclesiology, 2012. His own uh, 2012 book, Apophasis and Pseudonymity in Dionysius the Areopagite, No Longer I, Oxford 2012, won the Manfred Lautenschlager Award for Theological Promise in 2013. His new book, we'll have an event on this next year sometime, Our Divine Double, will appear in 2016 from Harvard University Press. His current and projects include a book on the problem of evil in Christianity and Neoplatonism, entitled Beyond God and Evil, to be published by Harvard. It's another book event. And a new edition and translation of Agrius of Pontus's Gnostic Trilogy to be published by Oxford University Press. We'll mark that one on the calendar, too. Welcome, Charles. Thank you, Frank, um, for hosting this event. Thank you, Ahmed, for the invitation to respond to this book, The Medieval Islamic Hospital. As I'm decidedly not an expert on the medieval period, uh, or Islam, or, of course, hospitals, <laughs> I might be permitted to wonder, as you probably are, what exactly I'm doing here. I suspect that Ahmed asked me because his treatment of the medieval Islamic hospital stretches back into late antiquity, where he finds two Christian ancestors of the Islamic hospital, or Bimaristan, in the Greek and Syriac intertwined traditions of medicine and charity. So my remarks will start in that territory, more familiar to me, and then I'll pivot to a more general question about how Ahmed interprets the religious dimension of Islamic hospitals, and the one in particular that he uh, uh, studies in this book at great length. So in the prologue to his book, Ahmed introduces the reader to the birth of Christian philanthropy in the Greek-speaking Roman East. Christians certainly practiced philanthropy before the fourth century, but they really started theorizing philanthropy in the fourth century. Fourth century, of course, is also the beginning of Christianity's long affiliation with empire. And this is not surprising because empire and philanthropy are related, per perhaps not in an obvious way. According to the historian Peter Brown, the Roman world in the third and fourth centuries was experiencing the slow erosion of civic participation and a sense of belonging. The empire's embrace of Christianity in the fourth century served to stem the tide of this erosion through the thriving institution of the church, centered on the figure of the bishop. Brown argues that the bishops invented the category of the poor. Again, of course, there were poor before then, but they invented this rhetorical category of the poor as those in need of Christian charity. And they articulated theologies of philanthropy to motivate emperors and wealthy elites to fund institutions that would provide nourishment, shelter, and health care to this newly categorized population. These institutions became centers of civic participation in urban areas for which bishops and later emperors were the principal patrons, places where, among, um, uh, among other things, elites could showcase their piety and generosity. 
The heart of this early Byzantine institution, then, was not the training or the practice of professional physicians, but instead the charitable outpouring of the wealthy to the wretched. By contrast, the other late ancient ancestor of the medieval Islamic hospital was relatively inward-looking. Ahmed discusses how Syriac-speaking Christians in a different empire convinced the Sassanid sovereign and other Persian elites to found institutions for the training and practice of medicine, Christian doctrines for Zoroastrian elites. The Christians gained in increasing proficiency in a profession that would directly benefit their own minority communities, but also indirectly benefit them by providing a crucial service to the sovereign and other elites on whom these minority communities depended for their very existence. In turn, these elites, these Persian elites, created a new field for competitive philanthropy as they sought to patronize their own physicians as a form of charity, although a form of charity that, that did not, so to speak, trickle down. I want to come back to the idea of competitive philanthropy. I recently had occasion to sit in a room with uh, head of Harvard fundraising and realize that this is actually a significant <laughs> feature of fundraising, is uh, getting fundraisers to uh, compete. Um, Ahmed's, or Ahmed argues that the medieval Islamic hospital is in many ways a hybrid of these two models of medicine and charity from late antiquity. So in this way, he's pushing back against that narrative that he led with in his remarks that the medieval Islamic hospital is a sharp break from the Byzantine. He actually begins the book by showing a continuity. Now, except that he insists that there is no single medieval Islamic hospital, so better perhaps to think of each local Bimaristan as negotiating between these two models and reaching its own balance, poised between the needs of the community and the aims of the founding sovereign. So now let me pivot and ask you, Ahmed, a more general question about your treatment, both of these two ancestors and of the hybrid medieval Islamic hospital. So the subtitle to your book is Medicine, Religion, and Charity. And having now finished the book, it seems to me that the rank, the, uh, I would rank these in importance to your interpretation as first charity, second medicine, and third religion. What I mean is this. Your interpretation, especially but not exclusively of your case study of Bimaristan al-Mansuri in Cairo, brings out the rich ideology of philanthropy and monumentality that motivate the foundation and maintenance of these institutions. You convincingly argue that the founder, uh, Kalawun, is most interested in securing his legacy as a pious philanthropist, caring for the poor, the pilgrim, the mad, the afflicted. His interest in medicine and in physicians is instrumental to that end. Doctors are only ins important insofar as they can contribute to that care. They are not valued as intellectuals in themselves or as innovators in their field. In this regard, Kalawun's hospital seems more Byzantine than Sassanid, more Greek than Syriac. Now, we're primed to think that he has his priorities in order. Better to have the doctors serve the poor than the poor serve the doctors as if they were mere occasions for physicians to showcase their skill. That is, of course, one view of what, <laughs> what the poor are there to do uh, for, for the field of medicine. Um, 
But here is where your book is very interesting, I think, because you complicate our reaction by attending to the ideology behind, the philo this, behind this philanthropic priority, how the sovereign's legacy is at stake, how he wishes to be memorialized and monumentalized, and how philanthropy is, again, a field of competition in which a sovereign is not only competing with his contemporaries, but more so with his predecessors, building hospitals, mausoleums, and madrasas in order to secure his place among, and ideally above, those great sovereigns who have come before him, and no doubt will come after him. In other words, you ask the reader to consider the degree to which these philanthropic efforts on behalf of one group of others, namely the poor, are as much about the construction of the sovereign's own self, a self that is also constituted by a different group of others, namely those who will remember and revere him. But here's where I'd like you to speak more about religion, that third part of your subtitle. You open the book by warning that scholars have often reified the diverse history of hospitals in the medieval Middle East by assuming that there must be a single, unified, and decidedly Islamic hospital to be found and its origin traced. Your point leads the reader to question whether there is anything singularly Islamic about these different institutions of care and cure. In this case, the category of religion, or at least a monolithic account of Islam, has not proven helpful to our understanding of these institutions. So what does religion help us understand about these hospitals? How are we to understand them as Islamic hospitals, apart from the obvious fact that they are funded and uh, founded and funded by Muslims and largely serve Muslims? You successfully focus our attention on the ideology of philanthropy and monumentality at work in these institutions and the diverse ways in which medicine is supposed to be a means, uh, is supported either as a means or as an end. But is there an Islamic theology behind this philanthropy, a religious ideology for a sovereign's care for the poor? Does the sovereign or other elites seek only to construct a legacy for themselves as pious and generous? Do they, for example, regard their salvation as somehow at stake in this enterprise? I ask because in the case of Byzantine philanthropy and medicine, we have ample evidence of bishops, including some of the greatest Christian intellectuals of the fourth century, articulating precisely such a theology of anthropology, a decidedly Christian justification of these institutions. So I wonder if there's a parallel for the medieval Islamic hospital or hospitals. Who are the religious elites? who are not, not founding or funding these enterprises, are not the physicians staffing them, but who are the preachers and writers making the religious argument for why these institutions must exist? Thank you. Thank you, Charles. I'm honored to introduce our second discussant, uh, Roy Madahade, uh, the Gurney Professor of History here at Harvard University. Uh, Roy, like myself, was born in New York City. In 1960, he graduated magna cum laude in history here from Harvard College. He had then undertook a second BA in Persian and Arabic at Cambridge University in the UK. In 1962, he returned to Harvard for doctoral studies in history, where he studied with Hamilton Gibb and Richard Fry. Roy began his teaching career at Princeton University in 1970, 
but his career was interrupted first by a Guggenheim Fellowship, which allowed him to write his first book, Loyalty and Leadership in Early Islamic Society, which came out in 1980. Then even more of an interruption, he was one of the first group of MacArthur Fellows, the so-called genius group. Um, and the MacArthur Award allowed him to write his second book, The Mantle of the Prophet, which came out in 1985. After his distractions by all these awards, he came back to teach full-time at Harvard in 1986. <clears throat> and he became professor of Islamic history in the history department. He serves as director of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies here at the university from 1987 to 1990. And during that time, founded the Harvard Middle East and Islamic Review as a medium for Harvard students and teachers to publish their work. It was in 1994 that he became the Gurney Professor of History. Professor Madahadeh's uh, publications include such diverse topics as the transmission of learning in the Muslim world, the social bonds that connected people in the early Islamic Middle East, the theme of wonders in the Thousand and One Nights, the concept of jihad in the early Islamic period, and perceptions of Persepolis among later Muslims. He's also written a very interesting book, 2003, Lessons in Islamic Jurisprudence, which studies the philosophy of Islamic law as it has been taught in Shiite seminaries. So let us welcome Roy. Thank you very much. Uh, the, uh, among the many things to praise about this book is its excellent use of architectural evidence, which I think has not been anticipated uh, in general books on uh, Islamic hospitals in the Islamic world. I shouldn't call them Islamic hospitals. Um, the, uh, it also points out that the Bimaristan, the hospital, is part of a building program in many cases in which uh, neighboring institutions um, are uh, taken into account, both aesthetically and uh, in practical terms. And of course, one of the things to notice, which I will return, is the nature of, particularly in Egypt, of the omnibus institutions, <laughs> which the Mamluk rulers of Egypt so liked to patronize, or to, uh, which included sometimes hospitals, sometimes seminaries for teaching, sometimes uh, uh, Sufi centers for dhikr, uh, uh, remembering God, and so, so on, so, and, and all kinds of other purposes. Uh, the uh, relation of it uh, to the uh, public face of the ruler, of course, is a key element in the book and a key element in understanding these kinds of institutions. And I think we should think of the hospital as kind of a living prayer um, for the founder. Uh, because uh, in some cases, I've read some Mamluk Foundation documents, it talks about uh, the students who are being educated in the uh, in the educational part of these omnibus institutions. It talks about the students praying directly above the prayer of the, of the tomb of the founder. I think it's seen as uh, all of these charitable activities are seen as part of the living prayer that uh, in, for the uh, founder who, as a Mamluk 
no doubt was a rough, tough person. And killed many people, but but nevertheless wanted wanted somehow or another, both in this life, in the the, the present day world, and the word for this was adhikral jamil, beautiful remembrance. They people wanted beautiful memory memory in this world. They paid panegyric poets for it. They erected buildings for it, but they also wanted wanted in the next life to somehow be prayed for, and indeed in Islamic thought, uh, the prayers of uh, the living help the dead. Uh, uh, the transmission of medical knowledge is an extremely interesting aspect of the book, uh, particularly the chapter on dhakwar, um, yeah, because here we have somebody who is using uh, part of the kind of eternal uh, textbook like Ibn Sina, as well as reviving earlier sources like uh, Al-Kitab al-Hawi of Arazi. And this is fascinating because it shows him taking uh, observational notes, uh, revising, uh, revising uh, ideas as it goes along, uh, in, to some ex extent inspired by somebody several centuries earlier who took a lot of observational notes, as Razi seems to have, on these patients and their diseases. Um, the, uh, uh, I, I think that an important aspect of this, uh, of course, is these are councils of perfection, it would be to understand the food chain that exists among doctors. That is, in a work, we have a wonderful work, very early Mamluk work, which uh, uh, Ahmad quotes uh, about the, um, the job of the market inspector, Ibn Akhua writes a book on the job. He talks about what we would call shop front or, I don't know, shopping center or mall-based <laughs> physicians. <laughs> <laughs> in the in the souk in the marketplace, and um, the, the importance for regulation of them. He expects all of these people who sell syrups to have red gale and all this. Very unrealistic, but anyway, <laughs> they, they, there there is clearly a, a series of references. Also in the anecdotal literature, and here I'm thinking of somewhat earlier stuff like Tanuki. We have a lot of indications that the better, the wealthier sort of people had house calls. And um, indeed, uh, in uh, uh, Ahmad Ragab's valuable list of people who went to the hospital, we have mostly the respectable poor, as far as I can figure out. They, they are people of dignity, but poor. Uh, wealthier people seem to have got house calls, no doubt they were paid better for them. So we have uh, indeed a um, we have a food chain to establish among physicians and so on and so forth. Some people, um, uh, there are people like bone setters, uh, mujabbir, who seem to exist at um, uh, one family in a community. Seems to exist, uh, as far as I can tell from my reading of these things. Uh, even in places that are too small and humble to have a hospital, there's somebody who knows how to reset your elbow if it's dislocated and so on and so forth. Um, so I think uh, the mixed use has to be understood 
of course, in the concept of Islamic charity, exactly what you referred to in the preceding comment, in the concept of Islamic charity, charity, of course, is, is very uh, culturally bound in its meaning. Uh, um, I understand that in China, many people buy and release uh, pet birds because they consider uh, caging them uh, a, a, a um, a nasty act, and to release them is an act of charity. So we should understand that many things here, uh, like the um, uh, constant rec recitation of prayers um, around the the family, uh, the, the uh, founder of the uh, the institution, should be part of uh, the activity of the institution. And indeed, many of these uh, foundation deeds have a, a stipulation in them that the descendants of the founders have a right to come and stay for free at the institutions. So that's, again, um, a, an idea of charity, but it's in, uh, perhaps uh, slightly different from uh, what immediately comes to a North American. Um, how discreet is the region of Egypt and the Levant? Uh, 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 to some extent, uh, this is discussed in the conclusion uh, by Ahmed. Uh, uh, the, he, he talks a great deal about the influence of Baghdadi institutions. Um, uh, we have, seem to have no influence from uh, east, I mean, from west to east, that is, from the Islamic world of North Africa uh, eastward. Um, do we have uh, Egyptian influence? to uh, other places. And these are, as I say, councils of perfection. Perhaps this would need another two or three more books. <laughs> anyway, uh, I do disagree with uh, the thesis of Yasir Taba uh, about the Sunni revival. I, I think there are several Sunni revivals in different areas of Sunni thought. There was a revival in Baghdad at the beginning of the 11th century. There's another revival with when Saladin puts down the Fatimid Empire. Uh, I, I don't think the Sunni revival is a single thing. Uh, and, and there are several Sunni revivals. And an important part of this is uh, evidence about this is given when you tell about a Fatimid monument in Jerusalem, which has Umayyad-style ornament on it. Um, it just shows you that this Shiite dynasty is using the local style of ornament, which belonged to the arch enemies of the Shiites. Um, anyway, it's a wonderful book, uh, and uh, look forward very much to volume two. Thank you. Thank you very much, Frank. And I'm honored to now introduce our third and final uh, discussant, uh, Professor Shigehisha Kuriyama, who is the Reischauer Institute Professor of Cultural History and also Department Chair in East Asian Languages and Civilizations here at the university. He received his uh, AB degree from the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations in 1977 and his master's degree in 1978. After completing acupuncture studies in Tokyo, he entered the Department of History of Science here at the university and re received his PhD in 1986. 
He then joined the faculty here at Harvard as the Reischauer Professor in 2005 after previously teaching and working at University of New Hampshire, Emory University, and the International Research Center for Japanese Studies in Kyoto in Japan. Professor Kuriyama's research explores broad philosophical topics such as being and time, representations and reality, knowing and feeling, through the lens of specific topics in comparative medical history, Japanese, Chinese, and European. His 1999 book, The Expressiveness of the Body and Divergence of Greek and Chinese Medicine, received the 2001 William H. Welsh Medal for the American Association of the History of Medicine. His recent work, which is incredibly fascinating to me as I just read the words on the page, include studies on the history of distraction, <laughs> the imagination of strings in the experience of presence, the transformation of money into humor in Edo, Japan, the nature of hiddenness in traditional Chinese medicine, and the web of connections binding ginseng, opium, tea, silver, M and MSG. We'll have to have you back for a number of lectures on these <laughs> topics. Welcome. So thank you very much. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I've been at Harvard for about 10 years, but this is actually the first time I've been in this building. So thank you, Ahmed, and, and thank you, Francis. Um, for those who read this book, I think for students who read this book, one thing that they'll be very impressed with is really its rigor. So one of the, the basic points that, that's historiographically clear from the book is the importance of evidence. This is a, work that, a word that appears repeatedly in the book. And where Ahmed says, well, historians have said this about Islamic hospitals, but where's the evidence? And he does a very thorough job of examining what what the texts actually tell us. And one of the things that, that he demonstrates is really that things are always more complicated. He shows, among other things, that this so-called Islamic hospital, the Bidmanistan, is both functionally more diverse, that it, it wasn't just a medical hospital, it served as a charitable institution, it's also served as a lodging place, and this is a point I want to return to. Um, and also, uh, the importance of looking, he also emphasizes the geographic diversity, so that pre whereas previous historiography focused primarily, say, on Iran and Iraq, also looking at the importance of looking at Egypt and the Levant. What I want to focus on, um, I, I'm not at all a historian of the hospital. In fact, I know very little about the history of the hospital, not least because um, this kind of institution, if you read histories of East Asian medicine, or something that basically dates from the 19th century. There's, there's no uh, early history of the hospital. Um, but it does seem to me that, that Ahmed's book, um, particularly for historians of medicine, is very interesting. Precisely, not so much for the topic, oh, it, definitely interesting for the topics he discusses, but the topics that he points to but doesn't, hasn't followed up on I think would be really interesting for, I mean, I think I, one of my comments are basically going to focus on, if you were a historian, a graduate student in the history of medicine, what, what really interesting topics are there um, and suggested by his book? Um, but before that, I want to just raise one question to Ahmed, just a very specific question really about 
the relationship between the Bimaristan and similar institutions. So one of the things that uh, Ahmed emphasizes in the book is really the diverse functions of the Bimaristan. Um, does talks a fair amount about the relationship uh, interplay and differences between the Bimarsa and the Madrasa, so sort of educational institutions, but also refers to the function of, of the Bimaristan as pharmacies, dispensing drugs. And so I was not knowing anything about really the history of pharmacies in the Islamic world. I was curious about really wh whether there are independent pharmacies, what is the relationship between them. Um, the other institution that I was curious about was really the relationship between this and the caravanserai uh, because of the importance of, of travelers. And this, this is actually the thing that struck me the most, the traveler, and I'll return to that. Um, but beyond these specific questions, it struck me that there are really four really interesting topics um, for both historians of medicine and cultural historians to think about that are that you can sort of see in the cracks of his book, um, but, but aren't really taken up as, as aren't really thematized as such. Um, the first may seem like a detail. It may be a, a minor point or it may not be. Um, but in uh, the discussion of why it is that we have the view of hospitals in the Islamic world that we have now, um, he talks about uh, the so-called exaggerated role of uh, Gundesapur. Um, and he explains this, what seems like a historic, historiographic distortion uh, to the role of medical families such as Banu Bhaktishu. Right? And what struck me um, as I was thinking about this, and this idea of medical families actually appears several times in the book. And this interests me a lot. This is not something I've thought about at all before reading the book. But it struck me that this is actually a very, potentially a very fruitful way of approaching uh, particularly pre-modern medicine in many parts of the world. That is the role of medical families. We have lots of histories, of course, as you know, of great physicians, famous individuals. Uh, we also have histories of institutions, universities, hospitals. Um, but we don't really have much histories of medical families. But, but actually, medical families may have played an enormously large role, maybe more important than hospitals, maybe more than in, in, uh, universities in various contexts. And that looking into, into families, both because of their uh, temporal extension and their you know, the breadth of their social networks, I think might be very interesting. And that one of the reasons why we haven't thought about this, because even though they, it's, it's not hard to find evidence of the importance of medical families in various parts of the world, I think particularly in, in East Asia and, and, and Middle East, um, may have to do with our own sense of atom, atomized individuals, that we think we focus on the individuals, and this is, our, this is what doctors are. And of course, we know that there are sort of minor medical dynasties in the contemporary world. But for the most part, we think of individuals. But I think probably medical families played a much larger role in medical history than, than we've recognized. And we haven't studied that at all. Um, 
The second theme that struck me, and I, I don't know if you, if you noticed this, and I, I, I didn't count, but one of the words that appears the most, actually, uh, in Ahmed's book is the word famous. Um, and I think in, in a lot of instances, you know, the famous physician, the famous institution, um, and I, I think probably in a lot of instances, this is not necessarily Ahmed's word per se, he's, he's sort of citing the historiography. But because it appeared so often, I want to start thinking, what exactly does that mean, famous? And so there are two aspects of, of the notion of famous that struck me. One is, what does it mean to be famous? What did it mean to be famous in a particular place? Now we have a certain idea of fame that's shaped by the media, right? But what does it mean to be famous in a world before the spread of newspapers? Um, what, 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 is, what, what did it mean? And second, how did one become famous? Because not all the famous people are rich and powerful people. You have some saints, some, some poor people who achieve fame. So what were the paths to achieve fame? And I think this is a question that you could ask, of course, not only for the subject matter or the time and place that Ahmed is discussing, but for across the board. I think of comparative history of the paths to fame, the nature of fame, would be extremely interesting. Um, the third uh, area that also very interested me very much in, and um, was um, the notion of the connection between the history of hospitals and the history of hospitality. Uh, so the previous two speakers emphasized this notion of charity, but one of the things that, that uh, Ahmed also sort of highlights in his uh, discussion is that these bimaristan not only served, let's say, the sick and the poor um, and the crippled, but also travelers. Travelers played a big part in, in, in the story, and that interests me a lot, the, the grouping of travelers with, let's say, the blind or, the, or lepers. Um, so what is... I mean, this, I'm not asking you to answer this, but, but I think this question of what is the history of hospitality? What is the history of kindness to strangers? Um, and particularly because, you know, if we think about this notion of hospital, I mean, just etymologically thinking about the hospital, the idea of the host, which is simultaneously guest and host, right? This very peculiar, simultaneous, seemingly contradictory categories. Um, that, um, you know, beyond the history of charity specifically, I think there's so much of this history of hospitality that would be extremely interesting to pursue. Um, and finally, more specifically with respect to medicine, one of the uh, themes that um, Ahmed's book pointed me to that, again, I, I'm pretty sure nobody has really studied um, but I think would be extremely interesting to study is what one might broadly call um, travel medicine. That is, these people come, one of the things that uh, these Bimaristan uh, cater to is really both the sick and the tired, and, uh, but, but in the context also of travelers. Um, so we have medicine 
studies of medicine that treat, of course, local dwellers. We also have histories of domestic medicine. Um, but nobody's really studied travelers. And in certain periods, in certain areas, travel is extremely important, not least because of pilgrims. Um, but of course, you also have lots of merchants. So this is an aspect of uh, the history of medicine that hasn't been studied at all. That is, if you're a merchant or if you're a program and you travel set out, what do you do? Right? Of course, you, you're, the, the very rigors of travel lead you very easily to get sick. So first, what do you do when you get sick? But also, how do you prepare? I mean, what do you take with you? Um, so all of these aspects of travel medicine, um, I think would be uh, great if there are any students out here. I don't think so, but, but, but this would be another great area to research. So congratulations, wonderful book. Thank you all so much for your comments. This is really, I'm, I'm very grateful for the time you spent with the book. Uh, you probably read it more carefully than I did, and that's really great. Thank you so much. Um, I think all the questions and points that were raised are, are extremely interesting. And um, starting with uh, Charlie's comments on the questions that are related to charity and how we root charity in a particular religious practice. And first, with the uh, note that actually the subtitle, the words of the subtitle could be rearranged, having charity, medicine, and religion. And I think this is, this is a, obviously a very valid point and a very interesting point. And I think part of the reason why uh, this order might work and the, the order that Charlie suggested might work is that part of the argument that I was trying to make is that the practice of medicine itself is part and parcel of the charitable practice. That almost medical practice in general, and this is at least how these physicians believe their practice to be, the practice of medicine in general could hardly be imagined outside of charity. And I would argue also outside of a particularly a particular form of charity that is conditioned through specific religious views. So in a way, um, medicine and medical knowledge was seen as something that really is priceless. It cannot, you could never charge people enough for the knowledge that you have. And there is a story that, um, that I tell quite often of this physician who, uh, who's speaking with his patron who was sometimes a caliph, sometimes a king. It keeps being repeated with different patrons. And he asks the patron, um, if you have this disease that you cannot pass urine and I can um, treat you, how much would you give me? And then the patron says, I'll give you half my kingdom. And he said, so what if you have this disease that you keep urinating and you can't stop and I can treat you, how much would you give me? And he says, I'll give you half my kingdom. And he said, well, your entire kingdom is really worth a piss going out and in. So for them, this was a sign of how medical knowledge is entirely priceless and as such, the practice of medicine is part and parcel of charity. You charge patients what they can pay, not what, is, what your practice is worth. And as such, in a way, the hospital becomes the embodiment of the charitable practice precisely because it pays so little. So even if the physician is charging uh, or is taking salary from the hospital, it is really so little that it is actually in itself a charitable practice. 
Now, to root this within larger uh, religious or theological views in the Islamic context about charity, obviously it is connected to very to ideas about the deserving poor, for instance, about who actually deserves and should and to whom this charity should be directed. The Waqf documents or the endowment deeds of all these hospitals talk precisely about the different types of poor, about this being an everlasting charity or sadaq al-jariya, which is a sort of a clear uh, legal and um, you could argue theological concept about the nature of charity that these hospitals themselves founded. And in a way, all the practices, they are, I would argue that, that um, the nature of the charity that intends to immortalize the founder is also related again to their afterlife. And in a way, even the process of educating physicians, for instance, or educating medical students in the hospital was directly related to the idea of increasing the ranks of Muslim practitioners as an act of piety. So in a way, the, if there is a reason to think about this form of charity in particular as Islamic or Islamic, it, it would be precisely in how uh, the definition of the deserving poor, for instance, is articulated from this particular heritage, how the goals of charity and the intentions of charity are articulated from this particular heritage. And here, this takes us obviously, again, I use the term Islamic, and I'm, um, I again insist on the multiplicity of heritages. And as Roy explained, and I completely agree with this, there isn't one single Sunni revival, but rather many of them. And the role that Sunni revivalism or Sunni or movements, different movements of Sunni revival play in this book is how in number of cases, particularly in the Levant and Egypt, they manifest themselves into built patronage and into changes of the actual landscape. And again, one of the uh, Salah al-Din's things that he does once he basically dismantles the Shiite Caliphate and establishes a new uh, Sunni uh, realm is to transform a pavilion, a very great, a great pavilion of one of the famous uh, Fatimid caliphs into a hospital, which is simultaneously an act, a charitable act that it intends to support the poor, but an act of desecration as well. Because this particular palace contained also the tombs and the shrines of the previous caliphs and imams. And it was a place that was essentially inaccessible to the poor. Uh, and now it became a hospital, not only accessible, but actually attracting the poor from everywhere. And here again, this form of revivalism links together an act of charity with an act of almost intentional desecration that intends to erase the existing archi 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 architectural memory. Um, Hisa obviously raises wonderful questions, and I have ideas for four books now. So thank you very much for that. Um, I think obviously the question of medical families is very important. And um, for me, in a way, in tracing the movement of particular textbooks and therefore changes in medical thinking, the ideas of medical families and dynasties and their um, sort of their students and their uh, followers and so on is very significant, and it is probably the only way that we can really explain a lot of things, least of which the famous founding story that links the beginning of the Islamic hospital to this particular city in Gundishapur. And the interesting thing is that we don't have independent evidence of this particular hospital being so great. 
and yet it's all over our sources. And then when you trace it, we find that it actually could be traceable to this almost one single medical dynasty that dominated the medical scene in Abbasid Iraq, in early Abbasid Iraq. Um, and in, in the same way, medical families, their uh, students and the people who are connected to them is probably the most immediate way of thinking about fame because it is precisely these legendary figures that get perpetuated through these particular families that create a kind of fame that is visible at the time in this medieval period, but that also gets to be translated to us because they are famous to us as well because they are everywhere. And, they, and any student of Islamic medicine knows some of these names and they are famous to us as they were there because of the works of these particular networks or families. Um, Finally, obviously, the question of hospitality and travelers is, is extremely interesting. And, I, and here again, it, is, it takes us back to the question of charity. Um, travel as a significant feature of the urban environment in this particular period in the Near East uh, engenders and emphasizes forms of charity here. And here the traveler, much actually like the blind or uh, like a person who is scribbled or who's too old and so on, is seen primarily as a vulnerable person. So they may actually be rich. And, they, and there are a lot of these mythical stories about the sultan who actually travels and then falls into poverty through their travel. But the riches is literally in a small bag that has coins. And if that gets lost, then they are as poor as any other person and without connections or knowledge of other people, without these credit networks in a particular place, they are unable to do anything. And therefore, they become as reliant on the support as the other um, sort of other poor people. And in that sense, of course, the, um, for instance, other institutions that are related to travel, uh, like the Caravansarai, is a very important institution, or the bathhouses, for instance, which is uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm interested in, especially that, uh, especially in the earlier period, in the Umayyad period, in the uh, eighth, early 8th century, for instance, where we see the Umayyads building a lot of these bathhouses bath along travel roads. And I, from, again, it's a very early part of this particular project, but again, I think this is another way of thinking about medical practice that happens through this uh, uh, bathhouses. So thank you again so much for your comments. I really appreciate it. Final part of our program, I first of all thank our respondents for being so concise and brief. We have plenty of time left for discussion. I ask them to bring their chairs up here. Well, thank you for a really interesting panel, and, um, and I look forward to reading the whole book. Uh, I just wanted to make two comments uh, based on just to kind of, it's not really a question, but if anyone wants to respond. Uh, based on two of the ideas, interesting ideas that were talked about. One, just the suggestion about the relationship between the ruler and medical patronage. Both of, both of these things are coming out of my own work, so I've also been working on medicine in Tibet. And is some sort of a, there's a, first of all, the idea that a ruler who is responsible for the welfare of his subjects uh, kind of builds in at least, and I don't know how universal this is as an assumption, but it certainly is part of the rhetoric of governance in Tibet, I would say. 
uh, that you know one big piece of responsibility is to take care of their health needs, certainly the people who need it. Um, and and but in a certain way, by by engaging in that activity, there's a, a turnaround whereby just to use the Buddhist language, the merit of having done that then um, helps to ensure the long life of the ruler. So there's a way in which a flourishing hospital or a flourishing medical institution, which has been funded by a ruler, both achieves the purpose of one of the things you're supposed to do as a ruler, but also works to ensure the long life of the ruler himself. At least those two ideas get smushed together. In the Tibetan case where you have in the major medical college all of the monks, you know, in, in addition to studying medicine every day, they pray for the, the health of the ruler and by the way also the health of the state. May this, may the state, you know, survive for a long time, may it flourish. So there's that, those kind of analogies which I think are really interesting. So that was one comment. And then the second comment having to do with medical families, I, I think, which is also extremely interesting. And I, th I just wanted to add that I think the significance of focusing on a medical family as opposed to medical institutions is the way that knowledge is transmitted, you know, in a kind of formal and much more regulated um, and systematized kind of context in an institution versus the intimacy of a family. So in, in many cases, you do see father passing on knowledge to son, but the way that knowledge is transmitted and actually the very character of knowledge. Um, one of the things that I myself was trying to get into um, was this, this whole uh, manual, the whole bodily dimension of medical knowledge. So how much of medical knowledge is learned from books? How much of medical knowledge is about concepts, and how much of it is about bodily habits and about bodily actions? And I think that's I think one of the important reasons why looking at the the um, the kind of um, tran transmission of knowledge through families actually is really interesting for the types of knowledge and transmission of knowledge more generally, even outside of the field of medicine. That's one of the things that makes it such an interesting question. Um. Thank you so much, Janet. Um, the, I think the, what you mentioned about the ruler and the role in, in medical patronage as part of their care for the people, we see a very similar discourse as well in, in the text that I looked at, uh, where again it is part of, of this ruler's responsibility to be caring for the people, to sort of provide for their welfare. And as Roy mentioned, the, the prayer here is again, it happens more often than not after the death of the ruler. Uh, but again, it becomes, it is, there is this continuous process of prayer for the ruler. And in that case, the state here, there is a prayer for the dynasty itself, so for the descendants of uh, the ruler. I think also in, in some cases, the hospital serves as a site for the actual performance of this care by the ruler paying visits to the sick inside. So as if the sick inside the hospital stand for all the sick. And not only that he's extended, is extending the care through financing the hospitals, but also through the actual visits of these hospitals. Um, and that, again, is something that we see more often and more commonly in the Levant and Egypt, where the institutions are far more linked to the ruler and to patronage 
than uh, what we see in Iraq and Iran, for instance, where they are not that connected to sort of ruler-based patronage. Um, and yes, families, obviously, I think with the, the point that you mentioned about families and institutions, um, to add to that, the institutions themselves, it, it, particularly in case of medical education, uh, the kind of education that happened inside the hospital is still a, rip, uh, a sort of another form of apprenticeship that happened in other contexts. So the institution as a hospital served as a great place for apprenticeship, but the uh, relationship between the master and the apprentice, and in some many cases, the father and the son or the cousin or the nephew and so on, existed inside the hospital and flowed outside as well. Um, thank you so much. Yes. Well, thank, thank you for your presentation and the, for you and the contribution you have made, all of you. And my question ha is related to the similarity, the architectural similarity between the madrasa, or at least during the Mamluk period, and the Maristan and the Bimaristan, especially in Egypt and perhaps also in Damascus, in Cairo and Damascus. They, they were very similar. The, the cruciform panel uh, of, the, uh, of how the madrasas were built is very similar to how the hospitals were built as well. So they were, again, made basically on this particular uh, framework. Uh, the difference, obviously, is that the, the niches, basically, or the small iwans that, that form these four major iwans in the hospital would be transformed to become much larger to actually be essentially or function as a ward for patients. Uh, and you see in the structure, particularly of the bigger hospitals, a lot of architectural tricks, if you will, that are made to create somewhat of a closed space that is still open to the courtyard through, for instance, raised steps, couple of columns on the entrance that allow these events to serve as a semi-closed space while at the same time serving, again, to be open to the courtyard, which a lot of which physicians argue is a good thing for the miasms, a very important concept for Galenic physicians at the time. Um, and in the hospital that I focused on in particular, the, uh, there is a very interesting process through which people go through um, a, a sort of a small corridor, basically, which again, very similar to what madrasas look like. You go through this very small corridor to open up inside the um, courtyard and I argue that there is a significance to this process of taking you from the, the lighted, dusty, busy street into a space of darkness and calmness, and then after that into a larger space again that is open, lighted, but that has water and gardens and flowers, and that this process of transformation serves at the material level to separate the bad miasms outside the hospital from the attempt at creating better miasms inside, but also serves this process of healing transformation that basically happens as people actually walk inside the hospital. Thank you so much. Thank you. Could, could I ask you a, a question, just a follow-up on, on, on that question, my answer is in architecture. Um, one thing I was looking for that I didn't see in the book was really um, discussion of the, the uh, architecture of toilets. And I wonder if you can say something about that. That's absolutely great question. So part of the reason why there isn't a lot of discussion about toilets is that most of the of the actual ruins do not include them. Uh, so apparently they would be the very first thing that gets demolished or that disappear. Um, but from the textual references that we have, it seems that the major 
sites for toilets for at least for men were close to the whole of the uh, patients suffering from diarrhea uh, for very practical reasons apparently and that there were probably other toilets for women but there isn't much mention of this and I guess it is obviously not these were definitely central parts in the making of the hospital but the kind of um, the writing the performance of writing implies that particular things not get, get not to be mentioned, mm -hmm. just because it is not really appropriate to talk about these specific things. Mm -hmm. So I think we have significant um, areas that are missing in the written record, precisely because of this kind of performance of authorial piety, if you will, mm -hmm. with our authors. And the archaeological evidence doesn't do not serve us as much, because actually many of these hospitals, some of them were transformed into museums, the ones who are surviving, some of them, uh, including the hospital that I worked most on, uh, large parts of its buildings still function as a hospital today. And so in this process, it's obviously this kind of, uh, you know, preservation, but also destruction for the purposes of actual use. But uh, just to answer, I think uh, uh, talking about, I am thinking of the Rala of Kai Bay in mm -hmm. the cemetery. And there, there are archaeological studies. Of course, it's not a hospital, but there was two stories, and it was very interesting that the toilets were going down into the sewage. So I guess that in the hospitals, it must have been something similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Other questions, please. Um, thank you very much, Ahmed, for a wonderful book, which I actually have read. So, um, so it's seven now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I wonder, um, if, and, and just to say that uh, in your hospital is, is, is very much looming large in the period I work on, which is the 19th century. It's, a, it's a, a, an imposing memory, uh, not only the building, but it, as a model. Uh, I mean, they depart completely from it. Uh, right, yes. kinds of hospital and so on. But my, my question is about uh, pharmacies. And, been touched upon earlier, um, and what you just said about miasmas and the, the, the attempt to recreate or build a healthier environment uh, inside uh, the hospital. The hospitals I work on, at the main hospital I work on, 19th century, had uh, a botanical garden mm -hmm. inside with the purpose of uh, producing drugs. Right. Uh, so, so the question is whether there was this attempt to uh, to produce drugs. Uh, I mean, wh where did the drugs come from? This is one thing. Um, and, and secondly, related to that, um, is uh, Beruni's work on pharmacology and whether uh, this was something that was built upon, in, in addition to Epicene and so on, but Beruni's work uh, is also important in much later in my period. So I'm just wondering if you can say something about pharmacology and pharmacies. And pharmacology. Thank you so much, Khaled. This is great questions. Um, so the, the in terms of the actual drugs, 
it doesn't seem that these hospitals had uh, gardens or, or places for herbal for, to produce the herbs that they used for these preparations. And we have accounts or at least descriptions of the process through which they bought different drugs uh, by issuing, you know, very detailed purchase order that somebody else would sign. They would issue the money and get the drugs and so on. So it, it appears that the hospital dealt with the larger market of herbs that existed in these big urban centers. Now, it is entirely possible that hospitals that existed in smaller towns where first space was more uh, available, because obviously this hospital, for instance, in the center of Cairo, was in a place that is entirely packed and that just to build it, you had to demolish something else um, in, in the center of the biggest city in, in probably in the entire region at the time. Um, so probably hospitals in other smaller places had some gardens uh, that could have served to provide these herbs. Now, the practice of, of uh, pharmacopoeia in these hospitals was, um, and what I found is that it is actually different from, in a way, from the practice of pharmacopoeia in the marketplace, in the sense that there was more focus on local drugs, uh, which would have been presumably cheaper, so local herbs, for instance, uh, there was also a, far, a huge interest in making fruit preserves, which is quite interesting because the, the um, overall pharmacopoeia, Galenic pharmacopoeia, that was common at this time in the 13th and 14th century, was very much interested in fruits and particular forms of plants as a specific ways of, uh, as sort of, you know, um, that they could serve as medications. Um, there is really very little mention in the marketplace of these preserves. And it appears that probably these hospitals thought about preserves to prepare large quantities of drugs that would be available for use. Um, we have some additional evidence to this because people continue to refer to the hospitals as a place you would go to if you need a drug, a drug immediately. Um, there is obviously, and, and I, I talk about this, there is a constant worry by chroniclers, for instance, about hospitals not having good enough drugs, which shows that probably, again, the expenditure on drugs was something that these hospitals struggled for one way or another and therefore opted for cheaper and cheaper drugs. Um, now, uh, your question about Biruni's work is, is extremely interesting and, and obviously it played a very important role. In part, the pharmacological uh, or the pharmacopoeia in general um, is such is really um, a tradition that continues to incorporate additional texts and additional recipes and continues to grow and change in ways that are far more flexible than, say, the textbooks that are produced by the Galenic practitioners. So in this particular case, market manuals, for instance, hospital manuals that talk about their drugs, relate to things like written by Ibn Sina and others, but continuously add new things that are clearly produced by sort of the immediate herbalists in the market, many of whom probably their names are completely forgotten. And even in these major texts like Al-Biruni, like Al-Kuhin Al-Attar and other major texts, um, some of them continue actually to be used by herbalists till today. Uh, many of these texts con you can see in the manuscript tradition that the manuscripts grows and changes and in some instances, some prescriptions just disappear, presumably because the materials are no longer easily available. So it is obviously a growing tradition 
Um, some names become prominent at a moment, other names not so much. But I would say that the name and the relation to the name is less important than the actual recipes because the names get to be, you know, put on top of collections of recipes that continue to grow and change over time. You've been waiting, yes, sir. Uh, when the bubonic plague broke out in Europe, what effect did it have on these hospitals in the Middle East? So the, um, the, the book stops just before plague, um, obviously because it would be a whole new book with plague in there. Uh, but this is obviously, this is a great question. And in my work on plague, not in this book, but in other places, hospitals actually, uh, plague obviously affects the Near East in ways that are very similar to Europe. Um, but hospitals are not central institutions for treatment of uh, plague victims, in part because they are, you know, they are places where there is a lot of sickness. And the idea, part of what I argue in the book, is that uh, contrary to the to sort of the assumption that a lot of people would want to go to the hospital and hospitals would clog, in fact, people don't want to go to the hospital. And the only ones who go there are the ones who really have to go there. And in the case of epidemic, the even the need to go there is actually limited, one, by the fact that, uh, well, in part because the very poor will die a lot even before thinking about going to the hospital. And those who would have normally tried to consult the hospital would really try to stay away from it just because, again, of the corrupt miasms and sort of, you know, the possibility of even making your condition worse if you go to these particular places. And just add a, a note there. I mean, even my grandparents' generation in New York City, the last thing you want to do is go to the hospital. <laughs> that's like a yeah. death sentence. Stay home, yeah. take care of yourself. So even in you know, early 20th century New York, there was a yeah. sense the hospitals can make things worse rather than better. So exactly. Yeah. Things yeah. haven't changed too much, I guess. Uh, not really. <laughs> Lots of hands up. I guess. Is, is there any evidence about the role of women as caregivers or doctors or anything like that? Is uh, yes, there is mention, explicit mention of women care, caretakers that would be hired by the hospital, more uh, likely to serve women patients because there were specific, at least in each of these hospitals, at least one ward for women. Uh, actually, two. One for women who are sick of various diseases and one for the uh, mad women. Um, and because the mad are isolated in a different part of the hospital. Uh, so there is a mention of women caregivers. Now, as for uh, learned physicians, Galenic physicians, um, there is very little evidence of women practicing it, at least formally so. Although there is evidence of their learning the practice and probably doing a lot of practice that is not necessarily recorded. At the end of the day, the recorded form of learned practice represents only a small portion of the landscape of medical practice in general. Um, I mean, this, this question may be a little um, off from the general topic, but I'm burning to find out if there's any connection between Egyptian medicine and what developed so much later, whether there have been any, any kind of uh, um, indications of you know, knowledge or uh, so on. I mean, because the Egyptians certainly had some knowledge of medicine and of use of different items. Uh, so I, I wonder You mean ancient Egyptian? Ancient Egyptians, yes. So, it, uh, well, I mean, first, everybody had some knowledge of medicine. It doesn't, I mean, there are just different medicines, <laughs> but everybody, 
you know, the care for the sick is something that essentially every community, society, and every group of people uh, had some tradition or some form of. In, um, I'm not an expert, obviously, on ancient Egyptian traditions, but the, the things that we see from an antiquity is that it is part and parcel of sort of, of the Greek, Hellenic, Galenic framework in general, that it is just part of this particular constellation. Uh, that keeps developing over time in the Eastern Mediterranean. So the Eastern Mediterranean, even extending as far east as Iraq, probably is just is part of the heart of Galenic practice. It continues to be so, or it was so for a very long time, and it really continues to be so well into um, sort of even the 19th century. And the transition to what we know today as modern Western medicine for many of these practitioners was not so huge because, again, what we know as modern Western medicine came out of this particular tradition, although obviously a lot of changes happened along the way. Thank you. Yes, please. Uh, thank you. Well, thank you very much to all of you for this exciting and illuminating conversation. And thank you for your book. Um, I'm going to buy Right away. <laughs> Thank you. It's not very exciting. <laughs> uh, I want to have a more um, elaboration on the question of charity, the different meanings of charity, because it may uh, confuse the issue when you talk about charity. And the professor, you mentioned about the different uh, revivals, Sunni revivals, if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Uh, well, uh, yeah, you can. <laughs> well, there are several different words for charity uh, in uh, Arabic, and it, uh, it, it uh, the, uh, and there's an understanding from very early that part of your uh, income uh, should, uh, and it's specified, the, the, it's one fortieth of your, your capital gains, should go, should go uh, to charitable, uh, charitable work. And this is called sadaqat. Uh, 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 it's related to the uh, Hebrew word tzaddik and all sorts of other Semitic language words. Uh, and um, the uh, uh, the obligation, I mean, the encouragement to give to other people uh, is very strong. Um, now, the uh, uh, the question of uh, charitable endowments gradual develops very gradually, uh, and uh, it's really only in the third century. Of the Islamic period, that's roughly the ninth century of the common era, that we have charitable endowments. Uh, these are very powerful institutions. They, they uh, come from the idea of what's called in European law, mortmain, dead hand, that, that, uh, that certain things stop from circulation, uh, from being bought and sold in society, and are properties that are devoted income-giving properties that are devoted, whether they're agricultural or shops or whatever, to charity. And in fact, one of the fascinating things about some of these institutions uh, uh, that the Mamluks built is that they have shops all around them 
whose rent goes to the <laughs> goes to the charitable <coughs> institution. Uh, so uh, this is uh, a slightly different form of this in in the uh, far western Islamic world, that is Spain and the what's called well North Africa, uh, where it's it's called haps, but it's called waqf in most other places. Stop circulating. <laughs> and um, I, you have, I, I will stop at this point. You, you, you I'll, I'll I, I think these are, these are great points. And I think in, in a way we also, as, as Roy warned in, in his discussion, that we, when thinking about charity, we need to, uh, to be able to see how the meaning of charity expands beyond our conceptions of charity. So some of the debates, for instance, about whether charity could go to uh, family members. And that's, that's a very valid point, yes, of course. In fact, family members should be, are the first on the list of charity. So what you do to your family is a legitimate charitable uh, thing to do in the Islamic context. And, uh, and in a way, this also adds more, um, adds more to the nature of the walk for the endowment or, or you know, these kinds of, of particular endowments where they in part serve the family of the founder who will end up working in it, for instance, managing it, sometimes acquiring salaries from it. And there are endowments that are just meant to support the family only, without any other purpose. And in all these cases, these are just virgins of this charitable landscape of charity in general. Um, what I also argue for in the book is that alongside the sort of the big ideal definition of what charity is, Charity is a relationship, and therefore, at least in terms of big charities, as in charities given by rulers or big and rich patrons, we have to account for the expectations as well. So what are you expected to do? Are you expected to build a mosque, or are you expected to build a hospital, or are you expected to build a madrasa? And in choosing their acts of patronage and acts of charity, there is this process of almost negotiating how to represent oneself and how to perform pietistically in a particular community. But in the case of the hospitals, does it have... They were based on these endowments, yes. Yeah, but uh, I've heard that one of the principles of uh, Islam is the hospitality, the principle of hospitality. So rather than a offer help, you open your arms to <coughs> Right, so this, this, is a, this, this is true and part of, of this landscape of charity, but of course the word hospital in, in Arabic is not related to hospitality. So the word uh, hospital that is used in Arabic at the time is bimaristan, which literally means the place of, of the sick. So, so here, the connection that we see in, in sort of in the European word to hospitality is not so direct in the original texts, or in sort of in Arabic or Persian for that matter. Can, can I just follow up on, on the earlier point about charity? And if you could say something about, just to connect with uh, what Charles had said, the theoretical elaborations in the Islamic context of, of you know, justifications of charity in various forms, um, and their take on f the notion of philanthropy, of philanthropia. I, I think, so th this is a great point, and 
And it is an article that I'm working on, this particular question of, you know, how concepts of charity translate into medical practice. And um, I think some of the more uh, important impacts of this theorization on what it means to do charity is related to the definition of the deserving poor, which seems to be something that um, people writing these endowment documents and presume, and they are this, almost the same people who are running the hospitals, are very concerned with. Um, are these hospitals serving the ones who deserve to be served or not? And as Roy said, the respectable poor is the real subject of this particular um, uh, concept. So for instance, even in, in the Quranic listing of a number of categories of people who would deserve charity, one of them is called the miskin, which is coupled with a faqir that literally means poor. And the miskin was understood at times as to be the extremely poor. But during this period in the 13th and 14th century, and with people who are more involved in these big charitable institutions, they, they were, some of them were trying to revise the meaning of the word to mean a poor person who's really working and trying really hard, but just can't make it. And therefore, instead of talking about a person who is absolutely, has absolutely nothing, it's being, people are trying to move it into, again, the very deserving poor. It's a very Republican. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> so again, you know. Few things remain that crystal history. When I hear, I'm just thinking of this issue of, the, of hospitality and the hospital. You know, the, the Latin word hospice. Yes. And hospice fainted, Christus fainted in the medieval monastic tradition of St. Benedict, that the monasteries were seen as places of haven for travelers. And that how this relates, and I don't know the answer because I'm not a historian, how that would relate to the development of the hospital in the medieval European context, particularly this issue of the visitor or the traveler welcoming the traveler, caring for the traveler uh, in the traveler's both needs and illness. So I'm just wondering, um, in, the, in your kind of peripheral work around the project, have you thought of that kind of comparison with medieval, the development of hospital in medieval Europe? And yes, so, yeah, actually a part of, of, uh, of what I look at in the book is the connection with crusader hospitals in the Levant. Uh, which follow precise, so the ones, for instance, that were founded by the order of the hospital. Uh, so these obviously take per precisely this. These are institutions that are bigger. They include an infirmary, but they also include what looks like a hostel, an orphanage. You know, it's a much bigger space that is intending for service of pilgrims and travelers. And um, what I argue for in the book here is that in many cases, these institutions are actually built for because of this um, hospitality-related function, they are built for an imaginary or a potential pilgrim. So the sizes of these particular institutions could not be explained by the actual population around of it, but it could only be explained in relation to this potentiality of pilgrimage that could happen. And this also could be taken, if we think about other houses of the order of the hospital that are just spread throughout Europe in places that you would wonder how many pilgrims would pass from here? And that really doesn't matter in a way, because what matters is this potentiality of a route of pilgrimage that need to be dotted with these institutions of hospitality. What happens, the main similarity here that, that I talk about, is uh, the hospital that Salah al-Din built in Jerusalem after conquering Jerusalem, and that he thinks about building the hospital only when the the infirmary, the old crusader infirmary that he left open, starts now to receive more and more pilgrims. 
and he builds this huge hospital that again serving really a very small if at all existing Muslim population in Jerusalem only two years after reconquering it um, but here again this is probably one of the you know most immediate articulations of this relationship we probably have time for one more question anybody um, yes, no. um, looking through the various chapters of uh, your book uh, in uh, part five you seem to focus on who is there in the hospital, uh, and you call it the, the house for the slave. Uh, but uh, then uh, you only have 15 pages on the patients in that story around the Islamic hospital. Um, that looks rather short, you know, <laughs> since this is uh, built for them. Uh, uh, why is this the case? I mean, for the question, is it so difficult to develop a kind of, uh, I don't know, what social history of uh, these patients, or do we not have no records? Who are these uh, patients? Right. Would be curious to be a bit more. There are more patients in there rather than after the 15 pages. Uh, but I think what uh, this, in this particular case, in terms of the sources for the patients there, we don't have surviving records from these hospitals. We know that physicians, in many cases, were asked to keep um, records and, uh, of their patients, or at least write about the medications that the patients would have. But it is likely that these were documents for immediate use that got either washed and reused or destroyed and not really kept. And so we don't have immediate records. So the sources that are used to reconstruct this are related to how different kind of sometimes literary, sometimes documents, sometimes medical texts that describe the different types of patients that exist there. Um, and again, it is obviously, so in terms of documents and actual documentation of patients, uh, almost none of these sources have survived. So I think um, we've come to the end of our um, official session. There are still things to eat and drink. People are welcome to hang around and talk about with our distinguished panel. So let's conclude by thanking them very much for a wonderful.